0: Good morning, and welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is one of those days where I think I've spent too much time trying to explain to folks why Thomas Jefferson should not be canceled, and why the idea of academic rigor should probably not be dismissed as just a um, artifact of white maleness. But I don't know, you know, this is the, the, these are the times that we live in. Like, uh, people, uh, could we focus on what actually matters? And one of the stories that I want to focus on uh, today is something that I have been uh, I have been thinking about for the last several years, trying to figure out what has happened to American journalism outside of the elite precincts. I mean, we live in the, the, the best of times and the worst of times. I think that you could argue that right now we're seeing some of the best journalism of, of our lives coming from places like the New York Times, the Washington Post. But also, at the same time, you have the gutting of newsrooms all across the country, Uh, the creation of these vast news deserts where uh, there may not be any newspapers or the newspapers that used to exist don't even rise to the level of shadows of their former self. And there is a cover story in the Atlantic magazine that really captures some of what's going on here. It is a fascinating and I will say depressing read and the author joins me welcoming back mckay coppins uh, to the podcast Uh, welcome back mckay hi thanks for having me glad to be back so i'm really i'm really not going to make any comments about the chirpy midwestern accent thing i (laughs) i promise i I promised i wasn't
1: i i want you to know that i've gotten past that i'm over it i I just just, do you think your listeners have gone to the point where they've heard you complain about this enough that it's just it's just shorthand or is this just your own I, I I just I I just leave it to people
0: to decide. No, once for for people who don't know what I'm talking about, which I assume is I'm hoping ninety percent. Uh, <laughs> McKay did a uh, an article about the the bulwark back when we were just beginning and commented on my chirpy Midwestern accent. Um, so I. I, you know, it just, it, it, stuck with me.
1: Look, I, I report, you I know, decide, we'll let the, we'll I, let the readers I, decide I can, whether that was an accurate description. I,
0: I will <laughs> just, I will just leave that there. But anyway, this piece is, is really remarkable. This is a great work of journalism about journalism. A secretive hedge fund is gutting newsrooms and it's about the hedge fund called Alden Global Capital, which now Controls more than two hundred newspapers, a lot of them small newspapers, but also you know, some of these iconic publications like The Chicago Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, the New York Daily News. And mm-hmm. so it is this hedge fund has become the second largest newspaper owner by circulation in the country and as one of the biggest employers of journalists in the country. and And again, I, I've read about them occasionally as sort of the bad guys, the the takeover artists that come in and gut the newspapers. But, I've never read the detail that you have here, McKay. So, so just tell me about the, the folks behind Alden, uh, the men behind this hedge fund, and and why it makes business sense. And maybe we'll get to this mm-hmm. over the course of the podcast. It makes business sense to drive the papers into the ground, which seems
1: counterintuitive to me. So, who are these people, and why are they doing it? Yeah, I, th- this is the interesting thing about this subject, right? When I started working on this story a few months ago one of the things I ran into was that I felt like, and I think most people feel like they already know the story of declining local news, right? Like everybody feels like they know why local newspapers are dying. Craigslist killed the classified section and Google and Facebook uh, dominated the ad market and all these newspapers basically failed to adapt to the internet. And that's why we are where we're at. And There is obviously truth to all those things. Those are all important factors. But what I don't think a lot of people realize is that in this weakened state of local journalism, there have been these very aggressive, ruthless hedge funds like Alden Global Capital that have decided to exploit the fact that these newspapers are in the state that they're in and are are basically killing them off right? So Alden is what is known in financial circles as a vulture hedge fund. Mm-hmm. Um, they focus on distressed assets, which is to say businesses that are either in bankruptcy or seem to be heading that way. And they buy them at bargain prices and figure out how to make money by either breaking them into pieces or you know various other strategies that are employed. What Alden does very well is they have developed a model to essentially make profit and make a lot of money for their investors by driving these newspapers into the ground. and And the model is pretty straightforward. They When they buy a local newspaper, they gut the staff. they sell any real estate that the newspaper owns. They, in many cases increase subscription prices. Um, and, and uh, you know, there's a theory that they realize, that um, subscribers will not notice for a certain period of time, that they're getting a worse product and paying more for it. Um, and then they'll find other ways to to increase profit margins in the short term. So uh, in some cases, they have outsourced layout design to the Philippines. Um, they often move the reporters and editors to kind of small depressing digs attached to the printing press. And all of this is done to maximize short-term profits, basically Short term. wring as much cash as possible out of these publications That it can, w- without worrying about the long-term viability of the papers. And that's the key point I just want to make. For Alden and its investors to make money, they don't need these newspapers to be long-term sustainable businesses. Mm. They All they need to do is take enough money out Sweet. of the properties that it's, it exceeds the amount they paid for them, right? And then it'll show up on their ledger as a winning investment, a profitable investment. And if the newspapers eventually fold or are consolidated or reduced to kind of desiccated husks, that's fine by them because they can move on to other investments. So this is this is what's
0: extraordinary about it. I mean, this is sort of the ugly face of of capitalism here that they just sort of squeeze it out uh, to get these short-term profits. Um, this is not a turner. This is not your classic turnaround. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, um, uh, acquisition where you you buy something and then you fix it up, you make it better. Um, they 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 buy it to gut it and eventually in in the, in the midterm or long term to kill it. And and is, as you point out, all of this is happening without us knowing much about these guys. I mean, they they tend to be uh, 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 you know opaque. I mean, in general, uh, hedge funds are opaque, but but Alden really is secret. I mean, I, I,
1: yes. so who are these guys behind it? I mean, Randall that, Smith, Heath Freeman. Yeah. Who are these guys? Yeah, the, Alden, I would say is, is much even more secretive than the average hedge fund. So, uh, the two guys that you have to kind of know about to understand what Alden is doing are. Randall Smith and and Heath Freeman. Randall Smith was uh, a sort of pioneering vulture capitalist uh, before the term was even invented. Um, Back in the 70s and 80s, he was on a partner track at Bear Stearns and had this insight. He was one of the first people to realize that there was money to be made, big money to be made, by buying distressed companies and basically selling them off in pieces, right? Um, so he started his own little firm, made a massive fortune doing this with, you know, a bankrupt aerospace manufacturer with a Dallas drilling company um, and, and became a very polarizing figure in on Wall Street. I actually found a, uh, <laughs> a profile of him in the New York Times from the 90s where he was described as... Um, you know, somebody who excelled at profiting off other people's misery. Um, so he, he was this very polarizing figure, but he, he, his insight was basically right. He made a lot of money uh, doing what he did. And I think something that you ha- that a lot of people don't know about him, even those who have kind of followed him closely, is that he even though he was making money on, in all these other sectors, he had a kind of personal interest in the media sector. He, he, in the 90s, took his own money and helped his brother launch a an alt weekly in Manhattan that was called the New York Press. And it was run by a guy named Russ Smith. That's uh, Randall Smith's brother, mm-hmm. who was this kind of mischievous, troublemaking libertarian whose defining ethos for his publication was contempt for the journalistic class. Hmm. He actually told the New York Magazine, I'm repulsed by the incestuous nature of New York journalism. He wrote a weekly column called Mugger that basically went after New York City journalists by name in witheringly personal terms. And, And I think it's interesting to look back at this as one of the earliest media investments made by Randall Smith, because it was essentially conceived of as a giant middle finger to journalism. Um, Randall Smith, uh, you know, since then has become much more reclusive. He moved to Palm Beach. At one point, owned sixteen mansions si- in hey, Palm Beach. Wait, wait. Six, sixteen. It's sixteen. <laughs> Is that kind of wealthy person? Um, he, he has more mansions than I have pairs of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, many more. In so my he's, case, he's doing well. He he also has uh, was a major donor to Donald Trump's presidential campaign. This um, shocks me. Which <laughs> which might give you some insight into how he sees the media. Although again, he hasn't given an interview since the mid nineteen eighties. So he really has never explained himself, never, you know, articulated his view of journalism or the media or anything else like that. But that that is the guy who really is the founder of Alden Capital, along with his protege, Heath Freeman. Um, and Heath Freeman, just briefly, basically is a um, Kind of, he was described to me as a sort of prototypical Wall Street frat boy. Uh, You know, the the finance bro. It's Mm -hmm. a it's a a, a clear type. He's the kind of guy who would show up at meetings straight from the gym, wearing you know sweats or athleisure. He liked to brag about his college football career. Where, uh, just as a brief fact fact check, he was a he was a walk on place kicker uh, at Duke uh, on a team that actually won no games during the year that he played. (laughs) <laughs> Won no games. Okay. Well, zero, oh, wow. zero, zero games. But anyway, he he was he basically runs the firm on a day to day basis. He's the president of the firm, and you know if you talk to people who have been in meetings with him, former publishers of all the known newspapers, they will say that he he you know was a very feared figure in these meetings. He would like Hector publishers demand that they uh, produce numbers off the top of their heads um you know during the meetings but his, his his directives to them always was cut more find more ways to cut and you know as you can imagine that didn't go over well necessarily in the newsrooms that he owned where uh the people i spoke to said that he often often exhibited a sort of contempt for the journalists who worked there mm-hmm. he once uh ale- allegedly would ask what do all these people do Uh, There was one story that might be apocryphal that circulated around the company that when the Denver Post, which is owned by Alden, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize and he was informed of it, his first response was, uh, does that come with any money? Mm. Um, And and so the, the general sense is that these two guys are people who at best are sort of indifferent to journalism and at worst might be actively hostile to it or have a certain amount of anime okay, so th-
0: this is what i found most interesting because there's always been this question in my mind about whether or not you're just dealing with seven-year-olds running around the china shop with hammers and they're just you know destroying things that they don't really understand or whether it's purposeful so i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here so you write and i want to come back to the chicago tribune and what they've done to the Chicago Tribune, so they had this, you know, aggressive round of buyouts, and and the exodus included, according to your story, the Metro columnist who championed the occupants of a troubled public housing complex, the editor who maintained a homicide database that the police couldn't manipulate, and the investigative reporter who helped expose the governor's offshore shell companies. So this is not just trimming fat. This, I guess that that's where you know I come back to it. So it is like an almost. Well, you have a sense of a purposeful destruction of the heart of the journalistic enterprises that they take over.
1: So th- this w- is kind of the core question, yeah. um, in, uh, in both circles of people who have worked with Freeman or have worked at Alden, and you know, general industry observers, right? The the debate is: Are these guys just kind of? straightforward capitalists who right. have figured out a way to make a buck and they right. don't care what this does to the newsrooms that they own or to the communities that those newspapers serve. They're just trying to make money. Or is it is it something kind of more more hostile, right? Is it something right. more nefarious? Like and, and I, I can't say that I can answer for sure. I, I think that there's definitely evidence, especially in the case of Randall Smith You could you could posit, you could speculate that the dismantling of these newsrooms might be something of a perk for him. Right. Um, But I think he at the at the very least, you can uh, you can kind of conclude based on their track record, that they see these newspapers as nothing more than financial assets to be moved okay. around on a spreadsheet to maximize their profits and the profits for their investors. And, and that's really what they care about at the end of the day. You know, when I, I actually spoke to Heath Freeman, um, got an interview with him, which is is rare. He doesn't, he doesn't do many of these. But at one point I asked him, because before I talked to him, I had reached out to a bunch of the reporters that I had talked to at all the known newspapers. And I said, if you could ask one question to your boss, what would it be? And a lot of them said something similar, which is ask him what his favorite stories are that his newspapers have recently (laughs) published. Like, just ask him, like, Mm. what what does what are some stories that he's appreciated? You know, and I asked him that and he declined to answer on the record which you know i think to a lot of people would suggest that he's not engaged on or does not care about the actual work these newspapers do yeah, I mean it seems like he didn't even go,
0: you know, bother going through the motions of, you know, saying, you know, he holds journalism in high esteem <laughs> yeah. the, the robust future. I mean, he didn't he didn't even try to pretend. He didn't even go through the motions and, of going and, through the motions.
1: And that's the thing. So I yeah. thought for sure he would. Like when when yeah, I yeah. when we when we set up the interview and I was preparing for it, I was I was prepared for him to say the things that you're supposed to say if you're that guy, right? You're the guy who's done a lot of really painful cuts to the newspapers you own, you're supposed to say, oh, these cuts are tragic but necessary, and I hold journalism in the highest regard, and I want to place these newspapers on a path to a a better future. He he didn't really say much of any of that. In fact, he seemed almost to regard his reputation for ruthlessness and Alden's reputation for cost-cutting as a badge of honor. Like hmm. he he distinct it was the thing that distinguished him from the sort of cowardly saps who used to own these newspapers, these generational families. Right. He, he said, you know, they weren't willing to make the tough choices. Um, and, and the implication was, and I am right. And so I, I think that in the world that he inhabits, it you know being invited as an a, a, an honored guest to the committee to protect journalists annual dinner is not you know a huge badge of honor he doesn't care about that like he doesn't care about his standing in the journalism world what he cares about is you know, maximizing profits. And to the extent that he has kind of his own world where status matters, it's the financial world. It's Wall Street. He wants to be seen as a, a great hedge fund manager, a great investor. And you do that by making a lot of money, not by turning out respectable products or making these newspapers better or investing in these newsrooms.
0: So let's just step back for a moment and talk about why this matters. I mean, for people go, okay, well, why, you know, writing an article about newspapers? I mean, that's just one industry. It's a dying industry, Mm -hmm. but you know, you, you've explained that one of the reasons why you wrote this piece was you've been watching politics. We've both been watching what's happened over the last decade. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that you really are convinced that a lot of the problems that we're seeing now, the polarizations, conspiracy theories, the erosion of public trust, really can be tracked back to this, this decline of the trusted sources, that the disappearance of local and mid-sized newspapers, the gutting of them, you know, has had a tremendous impact on this media ecosystem that we live in right now. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. In fact, I would say that my interest in this can kind of be traced back to a lot of the reporting I've done on conspiracy theories and misinformation and how that's shaped our politics over the last several years my my typical beat is politics this is this story was a little off my beat or it seems to be but I actually don't think it is there there's a huge body of research that shows that there are downstream consequences when a local newspaper disappears right it corresponds with lower voter turnout increased polarization a general kind of erosion of civic trust and civic engagement it makes it much easier for misinformation to spread conspiracy theories to spread um there's evidence actually that city budgets get bigger and fattier sure. uh because corruption and dysfunction are allowed to kind of run wild without newspapers there to hold them in check. Um, And and actually it it does influence our national politics. There was an analysis by Politico that found that Donald Trump performed best during the 2016 election in places with limited access to local news. And this is, this is what's so important, right? I, I, I should step back and just say, when I talk about the importance of these newspapers, I'm not necessarily arguing for The the need to continue to print out news on, you know, dead tree paper and deliver it to the doorstep of of, you know, thousands of homes in every city in America. Right. I'm kind of ambivalent about or or agnostic about whether it needs to be on paper or online. What's important is a busy, bustling newsroom of journalists, editors, photographers who are documenting what's happening in the city and And digging into corruption and 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 yeah yeah right do doing that work and um and and what i think is happening when you look at you know all these problems that you've talked about on your show for years and that we've both been writing about these problems in our in our um in our politics a a lot of them come down to the fact that there is no consensus set of facts anymore there's no there's no kind of um common starting place that we can have our big debates uh, from right and that, and that comes down to the fact that there just aren't as many news outlets aren't as many journalists helping to establish those facts newspaper local newspapers in poll after poll survey after survey are the most trusted parts of the media and so when they die and when they they disappear there's a trickle-down effect of distrust across the whole media sector, and and that's what we're, I think, dealing with today. I, I,
0: I don't think you can overstate this. I mean, on a number of different levels. I mean, uh, a little bit of my background, I'm, I live, live in Wisconsin because my father was a newspaper man. We moved here when he went to work for the Milwaukee Sentinel, which was owned by the Milwaukee Journal. I was a reporter for the Milwaukee Journal back in the day, back in the early mm-hmm. 70s. Uh, I was the city hall reporter, so I covered city government along with others. And we covered local government and state government intensively. I mean, you look back at these old newspapers and the degree, the detail of our coverage, the detail of the investigative reporting of the watchdog reporting. Mm-hmm. And now you look at the, the newspaper and it looks like a shopper. And so you have a number of different consequences. Number one, that you don't have the people who are covering uh, you know, local government. You don't have the eyes on state government. And what that also means is that you have less civic engagement at the local and state level. And so all politics becomes more national. I mean, I yes, think that's one of them. Yeah. You're right about the erosion of truth and, and, and trust. But also, um, you know, back in you know a few years ago, when I was a reporter, I mean, everybody knew who the leaders of these the community were, uh, you know, prominent citizens, the county executive, people were engaged in all those issues. I don't think that that's the case anymore, Yes, in part because of all this. So so that when you talk about politics, it's all what's going on, Trump or not Trump, as opposed to mm-hmm. a time when, you know,
1: that was there, but people were citizens of their community and of their states. And every community is different. And that's right. the problem when these thing, the, these stories <laughs> get flattened when they're just right. reported in the national news. I mean, you think about everything that's happening in school boards right yeah. now, and school board meetings, right? The... the It's a problem that so much of the coverage, such a huge portion of the coverage of these education related, school related issues are are, is coming from cable news. Right. Because there's a flattening effect when it's Fox and CNN and MSNBC covering these things. Instead of the local schools reporter who's been dug in on these issues for years, knows all the players, can provide context and front page stories on a local newspaper. And, and, you know, if if people were getting their news on these things from their neighbors who happen to be journalists, I think you'd have a much different situation than you do now where it's, you know, primetime cable blowhards who are fanning the flames of culture war constantly
0: right? Well, yes. And and I also worry this, this may be secondary, but I also worry about the farm team for journalists, um, mm. that we have a lot of young journalists who work very hard, do outstanding work, but, but, uh, there was once was a time when they would have honed their craft in these local and regional newspapers, you'd work for the Milwaukee journal, and then <coughs> you'd end up in the Washington post or the New York times, but you would have, you know, put in a decade or more and now we have people for national publications who have never reported locally, have never covered mm-hmm. a school board meeting or a city council meeting or a legislative meeting.
1: Yeah, and, and it does have an effect. I mean, I, I'm actually an example of this. I will say that, you know, I, I my my local journalism experience came from internships when I was in high school and college. Yeah, and
0: immensely important.
1: Right, so you know, I wrote for the Metro West Daily News in Massachusetts growing up, and I reported for I wrote for um, the Deseret News in Salt Lake City in college. But when I it was time, it came time to apply for jobs out of college in journalism. I sent in applications to a ton of local newspapers across the country, but they just don't have that many jobs, right? And so where what I ended up doing was taking a job in New York City at a magazine. Mm-hmm. And I've been in New York and DC ever since. And I, I actually think that's a hole in my own journalism experience. Like I wish that I had spent a few years at one of these newspapers covering, you know, being the being the second or third reporter on City Hall. Or the state house, or covering police, or crime, or something like that. Those are those are important journalistic skills that you just don't get if you go straight into the national media.
0: Okay, so I, I want to uh, let's go into your story because the portrait you paint of what happened to the Chicago Tribune, I think, is just this perfect example of what we're talking about here. And so I want to I want to start there and some of the people that you talked to right after this. thanks for listening to today's Bulwark podcast and a special thank you to all of the Bulwark Plus members. We launched Bulwark Plus a year ago, and I don't think we really had any idea back then how fast it would grow or the kind of challenges we'd all be facing in the post-Trump era. If you've been listening to us or reading our newsletters, the in-depth pieces on our homepage, you know that we are committed to telling you what we think in a thoughtful, non-tribal way. But we're also not going to pretend these are normal times, and we're not afraid to try to make a difference here at The Bulwark. And we intend to keep fighting because the challenges to democracy are more urgent than ever. None of this would be possible without your support, and we're very grateful. If you haven't signed up yet for Bulwark Plus, please consider becoming part of the Bulwark community. And if you already have, thanks. We think you're in great company. Okay, we are back with McKay Coppins of The Atlantic, who has this uh, absolutely extraordinary cover story about uh, the the hedge fund that has been destroying newspapers all across the country. So your piece starts in Chicago with the Chicago Tribune, which as I was growing up, I just remember the first time that I ever saw the Tribune Tower, which Mm. is this just majestic building and kind of a symbol of the power of the Tribune. And and it's now a symbol of what's happened to that newspaper, isn't it?
1: It really is. So I visited Chicago this past summer uh, while working on this story, and I went to see the Tribune Tower. And the history of the Tribune Tower is fascinating. So in 1922, the owner of the Chicago Tribune announced that he was going to build the world's most beautiful office building for this newspaper. And he started a contest for the best architects in the world to submit designs. And he he put, you know, lofty quotes about the press and the lobby. Um, and he even directed the Tribune's foreign correspondents to collect fragments from the Great Wall of China and St. Peter's Basilica and all these historical sites and send them back so they could be embedded in the facade of the tower. Um, and when it was finished in 1925, it was kind of this remarkable architectural spectacle, right? And it stood for the power and prestige of the Chicago Tribune and its central place, not just in Chicago, but in the, the entire Midwest region. It was one of the most important newspapers in the country. And that, you know, to, just to contrast where the Chicago Tribune is today, the Tribune Tower no longer houses the Chicago Tribune. It's, it's uh, luxury condos now. Um, the actual newsroom is in a, as I write in <laughs> the Chipotle-sized office Ugh. near the printing press where reporters have to share desks. And it's, it's just really grim. I, I went there this last summer, and I've just got to say, like, it was even grimmer than I'd imagined. You were the, shocked. The, the I... fact that, I mean, this is a newspaper... That has that endorsed Abraham Lincoln. You know, it right. it broke the story of the Treaty of Versailles. It's won dozens of Pulitzer prizes to see the staff reduced to working in in this kind of you know tiny cramped office space. It, it just the is size such a of symbol of Chipotle. yeah. It, it yeah. just it's it. it It's such a symbol of what what is happening to this great paper. And, you know, that story is replicated all around
0: the country. But you you then go through what the consequences are. You know, for example, there was a powerful state legislator who resigned amid bribery allegations. The Chicago Tribune did not have a reporter in Springfield to follow Mm -hmm. the resulting scandal. I mean, look, I don't think you have to be a journalist to realize how extraordinary that is or this one, when when Chicago went through that brutal crime wave over the summer, the paper had
1: no one on the night shift to listen to the police scanner, which again, uh, like, uh, which, which ten years ago would have been unthinkable, right? Like you, they, they any self respecting newspaper would have somebody twenty four hours, you know, listening well, to the course. police scanner. You show up when the, where the police are showing up. That that's just that's kind of the blocking and tackling of metro reporting. And, and they weren't able to staff it because they didn't have the resources. So then your, your
0: piece starts in Chicago, but it ends in Baltimore, where you also have a tremendously storied newspaper, The Baltimore Sun, you know, which, again, was kind of legendary. I mean, this was the mm-hmm. wasn't that H.L. Mencken's newspaper, yeah, uh, the, the, yeah. the Baltimore Sun. I mean, this was a a national international paper. And it's also been gutted by these folks, hasn't it?
1: Yeah and you know the Baltimore Sun actually was the uh, the kind of site of the most aggressive revolt from uh, uh from reporters against Alden uh when it when it looked like Alden was going to buy the paper uh the Sun staff basically launched a public relations campaign to rally the city against Alden. Uh, They were looking for new owners. They ran editorials. They had rallies uh, to try to basically stop the sale from going through. Um, And and they got some traction. You know, they actually found a local philanthropist named Stuart Bainham who wanted to, you know, emerged at the last minute to try to buy the paper uh, from Alden and turn it into a nonprofit. Uh, He wasn't able to do that. Alden kind of, at least in his account, sort of torpedoed the deal. And, uh, you know, what's left is a, again, a, a dramatically reduced newspaper that once employed hundreds of journalists and is now kind of scraping by. Uh, trying to survive. And, it, you know, it's really sad. I actually talked to David Simon. Uh, I know. A, I
0: thought it was. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, so the creator of, of The Wire, he spent his formative years as a crime reporter, police reporter at the Baltimore Sun. And, you know, he said he, he made clear that this isn't just Alden. Right. The, the Baltimore Sun, like a lot of newspapers, has been under a succession of hapless or corrupt or greedy owners. Right. But but Alden is sort of the most ruthless and the most brazen. Um, and, you know, what he basically said was, you look at this city, Baltimore, which David Simon knows better yeah. than anybody. Baltimore's always had problems. There's always been corruption. There's always been police misconduct, all, all this stuff that was in the wire and that he's written about. But he said, you know, back when I was a police reporter there... It, you know, there was this understanding that if things got really bad, if, if you know, some government official or cop or whoever was doing really bad stuff, eventually the Baltimore Sun would find out about it and it would end up on the front page, right? And he said, today, the bad stuff goes on for so long that by the time you get to it, institutions are irreparable or damn near close. And I think that that's a, that's a perfect kind of, encapsulation of what it means to these cities when their newspapers are gutted.
0: No, I I mean, I I think it wasn't it uh, wasn't it Mencken himself who said that conscience is that small voice telling you that somebody may be looking. (laughs) <laughs> which is which which exactly. is really the which yes. is really the the function and and so in state houses all around the country people know that no one is looking you actually i, I thought it was in, very interesting you had david simon who's I, i'm by the way i'm convinced the wire is still the greatest tv show ever mm-hmm. um and its portrayal of journalism is the best i think i've ever seen and and menken you know you know talked about what it was like being a, a columnist uh, in in baltimore and he life, of the kings. The life of kings yeah and At the sun's peak, it employed more than 400 journalists with reporters in London and Tokyo and Jerusalem. Its World War II correspondent brought firsthand news of Nazi concentration camps to American readers. Its editorial page once had the power to make or break political careers in
1: Maryland. And now it is what it is. So... And, you know, uh, I I want to just pause to say, yeah. you know, the Baltimore Sun still has good reporters and editors there. And so does the Chicago Tribune. And, you know, since this story has come out, I've seen some pushback from some of the people who are still on staff at these papers who still have pride in their papers. And, sure. they, and you know, they don't want to see us you know, digging the grave for the Chicago Tribune or whatever. And, and I would just say this, the people who have chosen to stick around at these papers and try to continue to do this work should be applauded, right? They're doing important work and they're doing good work, but the conditions that they're working under are increasingly impossible. And asking them to cover a city the size of Chicago or Baltimore um, with the resources that they have, is effectively impossible. And so, uh, you know, it, it the Baltimore sun is is continues to break important stories. but, on the trajectory that it's on, I think it's an open question how much longer they'll be able to do anything approaching, you know, serious metro journalism. So a few years ago, I was on a
0: commission that was sort of wrestling with some of these issues. And I don't know that we came up with any answers here. You know, what do you do about the death of local journalism? Because, as you pointed out, the consequences are really profound for democracy, for our, our, our civic life. You know, and you go through the various things that have happened in newspapers. You know, you mentioned them, you know, the Internet, uh, Craigslist, killing all the class classifieds, which had a much bigger impact than I think anyone ever imagined at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Google and Facebook, uh, you know, basically hoovering up all of the, the ad revenue. And then, of course, you have the vultures like, like Alden who are gutting these newspapers. So I guess the question is that in a free market, if there is a, if there is a demand for local journalism, what are the prospects of someone stepping in and saying, okay, let's actually try to recreate local journalism? Is, is the marketplace in a position to come up with alternatives to these gutted newspapers? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm getting at? I mean, so it's Baltimore, yeah. you know? So yeah. that has happened in some places, I suppose. You've had billionaires who came in and, uh, you know, you know, a billionaire bought the Washington Post, a billionaire bought the Los Angeles Times, but that's not going to happen everywhere. Yeah. But if there's, if there's an appetite for local news, Shouldn't there be some sort of a way in which the market can respond to that? Or, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, not? and and there, no, I mean, look, there are active ongoing experiments testing this thesis in markets across the country the Texas Tribune, the Daily yep. Memphian, the city in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, these are basically. Digital local news startups that have been built from the ground up in the last decade or so—you um, know, most of them are nonprofit. They're funded by a combination of donations, um, subscriptions, the advertisement. So you know they are still uh, trying to make money the old-fashioned way, but they're also benefiting from other types of uh, of funding and. And, you know, some of them have had success. So to go back to that guy, Stuart Bainham, I talked to, the philanthropist who tried to buy the Baltimore Sun, he told me that after losing the Baltimore Sun uh, deal, he went went through all of these kind of local news startups and spent time talking to the people who are running them. And he said that he was uniformly impressed by the journalism they're producing. They're doing good work. uh, But his biggest takeaway was that they just needed all of them much more funding right yeah. um that that <laughs> his quote to me was you need real capital to move the needle otherwise you're just peeing in the ocean and so <laughs> what he actually is doing is he's launching um a a pretty significant challenger to the baltimore sun next year in baltimore it's going to be called the baltimore banner it's an all digital nonprofit outlet um he's going to start with a newsroom of around 50 journalists hmm. which is close to the size of the Baltimore sun have an annual operating budget of $15 million, which is fairly unprecedented for a local outfit of this kind. Um, And he basically wants to make this a new publication of record. It's not just going to be government accountability reporting though. That will obviously be important, but it'll also cover sports and art and local restaurants and local culture and all the things that kind of bind a city together, because that's the other thing that you lose when, one of these newspapers closes, right? It's the, these newspapers act as sort of a binding agent for the communities that they're in, and uh, he wants to recreate that. And so th- this is kind of the biggest experiment of its kind. A lot of people in the industry will be watching it closely to see if he can make it work. He's hoping that within five years he can make it s- self-sustaining through subscriptions and donations, and uh, and you know that's the goal. And And, you know, I I do think there is still a market for it. You know, even it it should be noted that Alden, a lot of the newspapers they've been buying more recently, like the Chicago Tribune, actually were still turning profits when when Alden bought them. Um, And they still, you know, decided to do dramatic cost cutting to increase the profit margins. But there clearly is still a market for this kind of journalism. But what I worry about, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, is that you know, readers will lose their taste for it if they go too long without serious local news outlets, right? Eventually, people will build new habits and become used to getting all their news from cable or talk radio or Facebook or whatever, and they'll lose their ability to even care about what's, you know, happening day-to-day in City Hall or, or at the school board.
0: I sense that that is happening. On the other hand, take a more optimistic point of view, if we go back to you know, your description of what their game plan is, gut the staff, you know, sell the newspapers, real estate holdings, jack up subscriptions, drain the papers dry until the readers bolt and the paper shrivels, that means that at some point out there, um, there, there is a, a hole in the marketplace. There is mm-hmm. something if people have not lost the habit, because as soon as you mention that, I'm thinking that. For many people of a certain age, getting the newspaper was simply a habit. It was something that you inherited from your parents and yeah. your grandparents. Yeah. It showed up. You just did it. It was like having milk delivered to your house, which also no longer <laughs> happens. But if you get out of that habit, if that institutional memory, you know, fades and dies, then it's gonna it will be hard to build it all from scratch. So it's not just building the the organization, it's it's building the the habit and the appetite and the mm-hmm. and the and the level of interest. So that's a, that's a significant challenge.
1: And I think that that's the that's going to be the challenge that the Baltimore Sun faces, and that's kind of the the goal, right? They have to create new habits. This isn't going to be a right. newspaper that winds up on your doorstep. It's going to be an online, you know, a website with various other. Uh, media channels that you subscribe to, and they need to create new habits for a new generation of Baltimore readers. And if they can do that, then you know it's possible to do it everywhere. And that that is the goal. And I, I do think it needs you know whether it's the Baltimore Banner or somebody else, a lot of a lot of you know yeah. energy and thought needs to go into how do we teach a new generation of readers how to engage with local news on a daily basis. Because if if we don't think about that, all of these projects are probably going to fail.
0: Okay. So let me just change subject for a moment. Um, and I, I'm going to ask you about something that you did six years ago. Okay. Oh, if you can okay. Remember six years ago. okay. So you you wrote a book <laughs> called the, the wilderness deep inside mm-hmm. the Republican party's combative contentious chaotic quest to take back the white house. That was published in December, 2015, I don't know that anybody could have predicted that uh, that was going to be Donald Trump. But you look, I'm sure you've thought about that book. What is the most surprising thing that happened? I mean, you did this deep dive into Republican politics, what they were talking about, who they were, what the jockeying Mm. was like. What has surprised you the most in six years? who it's a and big question. Yeah, I know. And, you know, I, I guess part of it is it was bad, but I had no idea it would get that bad. What would, what would you say?
1: Yeah, I guess <laughs> like what I would say is that uh, yeah, I've obviously thought a lot about that book because yeah. basically I was reporting that book and and writing it in between the end of the 2012 election and the beginning of the 2016 election. And the, the thesis that I put forward was that this was a, um and i think this is actually pre- held up pretty well that this was a, a kind of generationally defining moment for the republican party right they they were at a crossroads they were trying to figure out how they could keep winning national elections w- with a changing country and uh, with everything that's that that had you know happened since the reagan years how do they become a dominant national party again or stay that way and And what I wrote about was all these guys who were preparing to run for president. And I think what I wrote about was their kind of I, I, I wrote about their ideological battles, right? Yeah. So there was so much, there was a lot about Rand Paul and the kind of libertarian moment the party went through. And then there was Paul Ryan's fiscal conservatism and Ted Cruz's tea partyism. and, Um, And, you know, I profiled these guys as individuals and I also wrote about their ideas and I wrote about their uh, their kind of failures to live up to their ideals. But but it was all about about their ideas. And I I guess probably uh, what I was most surprised by was how quickly this entire generation of leaders in the Republican Party were willing to kind of yeah. dispense with these That's ideas right. um, to get in line behind this guy, Donald Trump, who, who is a character in the, in the book as well, but not nearly as big of a character as I, you know, he should have been in retrospect. But like, I, I think I just wasn't prepared for how quickly, uh, you know, Paul Ryan would throw up his hands. Right. Wow. And, and say, okay. And you know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting on board the Trump train or Marco Rubio, who was, you know, had this, you know, really, Gripping life story about immigration and growing up in an immigrant community, like you know, got behind yeah. Donald Trump. I, I think I, you know, it's not that I thought any of these guys were beyond, you know, compromises to their ideals. I, you know, I wrote about a lot of them in th- those compromises in in the book. I just think I was surprised by how little their their stated ideas, their ideologies, ended up mattering. Uh, you know, I, I think I think that's 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 a great point.
0: I guess that was. I was also under the impression that politics was about ideas and now it looks incredibly naive that in, in fact, maybe the, the ideas of the ideologies were this thin crust on, on mm-hmm. something else, but they did jettison them so quickly. And, and I guess I look back on that period and go, okay, so this was a fundamental misunderstanding about our politics. Mm-hmm. Um, those of us that were wonky thought it was about the ideas. Those ideas were serious when it was about something more visceral ideas, attitudes, whatever, uh, to watch a, uh, you know, a reality TV host come and just brush them aside. I mean, mm-hmm. just brush them aside in retro. I mean, I can remember looking at that stage, the debate stage, and you're thinking, wow, what an incredible collection of talent. <laughs> and yet, and yet, remember this? I'm sorry. Yeah, I, you know, no, I, I did. But, but if you look at that same picture now, you
1: go, wow, what a collection of losers. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. And, you know, I, I think the other thing is that these, like, I, I'm trying to figure out how to put this. Like the the it, for so long, it seemed like the the defining kind of battle inside the Republican Party was be- between the so called establishment and the so called conservative movement. Right? Yeah. That that was the the key tension, and I can't tell you how many thousands, tens of thousands of words I've written about that battle and. I think that what's interesting is that, you know, if I go back and look at that book and I look at the, I you know, if I look back through my notes and see who my best sources were, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of those people who were more establishment figures have become the fringe, right? And the people right. who seemed like the fringe at the time are now the establishment, <laughs> right? And so, yeah. you know, when I look back at that book, so many of the themes of that book were People, you know, these political leaders, people like Bobby Jindal, who's a Rhodes Scholar and finds himself, you know, basically playing culture war with the Duck Dynasty guys to to try to carve out a space for himself in the Republican primary. Um, You know, all these guys are kind of trying to contend with the reality that they don't fully understand the base of their party right and i think that that ended up being true just in ways that nobody could have predicted
0: i think that's the key is that we me um as well as many of these candidates just fundamentally did not understand the base of their party they thought they did and everything was a was a rude surprise now it's always good to go back and think okay what, what was I thinking back then? Why, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Why, why did I think that Marco Rubio would be a strong stand-up guy? <laughs> so like, or, I mean, you know, I, it's strange. Or um, Lindsey Graham, well, at least he's a strong, mm. independent-minded maverick. And we could, we could sort of go I through know. all of them. I know. And, I know. Uh, I know. N- none of them seem plausible. McKay Coppins, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. This is an absolutely fascinating story for me. I, I, I think for people who are concerned about democracy, about our politics, for me personally, as a former recovering journalist, uh, the, the cover story in the November issue of the magazine is a secretive hedge fund is gutting newspapers. It's an extraordinary story, extraordinary job. So uh, thank you for writing the piece and for coming on the podcast today, McKay Coppins.
1: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.